During this Eastertide, we will be traveling through the book of Acts to watch the first days of the first church, how they came together and took action after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So today we start with Peter addressing the crowds following the events of Pentecost. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and then 22 through 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having released him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter said, fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on the throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. This is the word of God for the people of God. On March 15th of this year, Lindsay Rush published a poem to her Instagram account. You can find her at Mary Oliver's Drunk Cousin, and I would highly recommend her to all of you. It was only about 10 weeks into the year, but 2023 had already seen a lot of not-so-positive events. The country was dealing with the continued effects of inflation, prices rising across the board, the invasion of Ukraine was and is still uh, ongoing. There were essentially back-to-back -back shootings in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay. Three people died in a shooting at Michigan State. In fact, there were 58 mass shootings between January 1st and March 15th. Uh, Tyree Nichols was killed by police in Memphis, and the Tennessee legislature passed a ban on drag performances. To say that 2023 had a had started on a dark and difficult tone would perhaps be an understatement. And in the midst of all of this, Lindsay finds a news story about an invasive snail in Florida. Now, typically, we would categorize any invasive species as bad. Invasive species are introduced usually through carelessness or accident, and they take over ecosystems, making it difficult for native species to thrive. 
Ask Floridians about the python population that has exploded there, or any of the serious gardeners in our congregation about how they feel about kudzu. We don't imagine invasive species doing any good for us or in the spaces that they have overtaken. But in Florida, we have the apple snail. And the apple snail is an invasive species that really has seen a boom over the last uh, few years, even and especially in wetland areas that have shrunk due to overdevelopment. That snail can be found now in abundance. Simultaneously, a native bird's population had been shrinking, so much so that it was put on the endangered species list. The snail kite eats only one thing. Guess what it is? It's snails. <laughs> and so as wetlands shrank and the native snail population died out, the snail kite's food source went away, and so they too started to die out. But then, as the apple snail's population increased, so did the snail kites. This invasive species, this completely unexpected, easy to malign snail, change the course of that whole ecosystem for the better. So experiencing both the tension of this good news out of Florida and the rest of 2023, Lindsay wrote this poem. In Florida, an invasive snail is helping save an endangered bird. In Nashville, an artist is designing a t-shirt that says legalize drag brunch. And in Minnesota, a bill is being passed that will provide free breakfast and lunch for all students. All the way across town, a man is making a point to shut down his friend's sexist joke. And just over yonder, a woman is taking her senior dog out in a stroller so he can see and be seen. Right this very minute, someone, somewhere, is holding open a door for a stranger, conceding the parking space calling their mom back, letting love override their long-held belief. It's true that goodness is an endangered species, but it survives in a shell, on a shirt, invasive and relentless once it catches the light. Goodness survives, invasive and relentless once it catches the light. Lindsay and her poem recognize something that we, the church, also believe. That no power, political, violent, environmental, patriarchal, no power has the final word. There was always hope for transformation, for goodness to catch the light. That is what Easter teaches us, right? That none of the powers of this earth, even the power and apparent finality of death, are beyond hope or transformation. It is why we gathered here last week and sang loudly and shouted alleluia at the top of our voices and applauded when the choir praised God in the hallelujah chorus. We celebrated because we knew in the midst of everything else, after a long season of Lent and after putting Jesus in the tomb, God had done something incredible. Easter teaches us that that story God's story of love and redemption is invasive and relentless. Goodness survived. It is why Peter was standing in front of the crowds delivering his post-Pentecost sermon in our Acts passage this morning, the first public proclamation of Easter. 
Peter, who perhaps knows better than most that the worst thing is not always the last thing, witnessed the transformative power of God. He stood with and spoke to the resurrected Jesus, and now for Peter, everyone must have the opportunity to know and believe that God raised up Jesus, releasing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Peter has to proclaim the resurrection, must proclaim that goodness survived. Peter and the disciples are just on the other side of the resurrection, barely past Pentecost, still on the day of, in fact. Jesus has ascended to heaven, his followers are now without their Lord, and they have been left with work to do. So Peter stands before this crowd of people, people who have no firsthand knowledge of what happened to Jesus, people who may or may not have known who Jesus was, people who, have may, who have, may have been among those who called out for Jesus to be crucified. Peter stands before those people and makes the audacious claim, audacious claim that not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but that he was the Messiah, the one who was promised, the one that David had been waiting for generations ago. There is no physical Jesus around for them to examine, but that does not stop Peter from calling them to believe. It is radical, I'm sure, even for Peter. Not that long ago, Peter had denied knowing who Jesus was, and the authors of the Gospels make it clear time and time again that the disciples had no expectation that Jesus would be raised from the dead. But Peter's life has been changed, and so his worldview has been altered. And it's not enough for Peter to know, for Peter to have seen the risen Jesus. In the resurrection, God's promises were fulfilled. Life sprang forth from death, and the world has been upended. So Peter's sermon becomes not just informative, but rather invitational. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, all of us are witnesses. Everyone, whether they were present for the crucifixion or not, whether they followed Jesus or despised him, whether they were faithful or betrayed him, whether they placed their hands on his resurrected body or not, everyone is now a witness to the resurrection, the invasive and relentless survival of goodness. Peter's sermon in this moment insists that the resurrection can never be an event located in the past of the church, but it is to be preached again and again. It's like the party goes on forever. (laughs) The resurrection is for all of us, and it is for all of us to bear witness to that transformative power. The resurrection was not a singular event, but rather a truth and a hope that we seek out over and over again. Peter's sermon squarely declares the role and mission of the church. Since its inception, the church has been meant to witness to the meaning of the resurrection. And it asks us now, today, how do we witness the resurrection? While the Easter story and Peter's Pentecost sermon and poems like Lindsay's remind us that goodness survived, they also ask us a question and offer us a charge. Is the resurrection still being proclaimed today? Have we, like Lindsay, like Peter, gone looking for the resurrection? Have we had our eyes open for the ways that transformation is possible? 
I know that that's not as easy as it sounds. I spent a good chunk of the opening of the sermon outlining all of the ways that the world is broken, the events and systems and powers that suggest that evil has the upper hand. I imagine that for some of you, it feels naive to suggest that transformation is always possible, to insist on looking for goodness, to suggest even perhaps that goodness can win, that things like war and racism and gun violence and bigotry can end, that humanity can and will do better. I won't lie to you and suggest that I wake up every morning springing forth to witness to the resurrection. I don't always see the good and possibility in everything. I don't always even believe in the promises of God. There have been plenty of days when I just, I don't see it, where hope seems not only impossible, but a foolish pursuit. When confronted with school shootings and the illness of friends and anti-trans legislation, I could go on, it feels impossible to point back to the resurrection and to claim the goodness and the power of God. But you know, even when I can't witness the resurrection, even when my body and heart are crying out with this despair, the resurrection still happens. That is the most powerful truth of this wild event that Paul declared in front of the crowds, the one that we celebrate every spring. Whether I'm on board or not, whether the church is doing its best or not, it still exists. Jesus' death, resurrection, and subsequent exaltation proclaim that God's purposes cannot be undone by any evil human act or even death itself, because God has already done the work. God is the one who enacted the resurrection, who defeated death, and gave hope a new voice. The resurrection was not God fixing a mistake, but rather making a declaration that nothing that is skewed and distorted and deathly need remain as it is. It reminds us that even though the gospel comes to us through the witnesses of other human beings, the object of our faith is never other people, but the God who certainly raised Jesus from the dead. Peter points not to himself and the other disciples, but to, the God, to God as the one whose word secures the truth of the resurrection. We are witnesses to the work that God has already done and is already doing. That is what Peter is inviting his listeners into. It matters not that they were not there for the events of the resurrection, what matters is how they live as witnesses now. It is what the church is called to be doing now, thousands of years later. We do not recreate the resurrection. We cannot recreate it. Like the resurgence of the snail kite, we do not do the work that creates this transformation. We are called to get on board with the work that God is already doing. The work is God's and God's alone. And by witnessing to the resurrection, we work to reveal the ways that that is happening. The church, as an Easter people, is called to witness to the belief that no power on earth other than God will have the final word. This truth should change the course of how we choose to engage in the world. It means that we look for and expect, albeit with anticipated difficulty, the ways in which God is actively fulfilling God's promises. So we make a choice. We witness the resurrection by looking for it. And it isn't just about looking for those places, about keeping a weather eye. 
It's about naming it out loud, making it manifest in the world, and not just naming it, but choosing it, acting on it. Standing here in the pulpit reminding us of the resurrection, reflecting on Easter is not the only kind of witness. Perhaps it's not even the best kind of witness. It isn't enough. It certainly wasn't enough for Peter, and it's not enough for me. As we continue to follow the first church through the book of Acts, we will see again and again the way that we as church are called to turn our gaze outward, to enact invasive and relentless goodness in the world in the name of God. And, and how do we do that? Well, Mary Oliver's drunk cousin, Lindsay, has already told us it is in the acts of relentless goodness the ones that point to the invasive, world-turning, death-overcoming promises of God, both big and small. When legislatures work to ban drag, resurrection comes in t-shirts and wig parties in East Atlanta Village and in the irrepressible joy of a drag story hour. When gun violence tears through a community, resurrection comes in the youngest among us raising their voices in protest and the fierce declaration of the truth that guns can and will be beaten into plowshares. When your friends use a slur or tell you they're just joking when they say something cruel, resurrection comes from defending the humanity of all people simply by telling them it's not okay. When the people we love are ill or homebound or feeling isolated, Resurrection comes from an I love you text or from uh, deacons bringing flowers and from invitations to coffee. It doesn't fix things, but it does make a declaration. Resurrection is invasive and relentless once it catches the light. We bear witness when we make the resurrection choice, the one that says, no, love gets the last word. Hope is not dead. So church, the question for us is, now that we are on the other side of Easter, what poem will we write? Where will we look for the resurrection? How will you make the choice that insists, that declares in word and in deed that no power on earth other than God will have the final word, that the worst thing is never the last thing? As we continue to be church, as we continue to be an Easter people, May we, may we be relentless in our pursuit of goodness, and may we never stop bearing witness to the resurrection with our very lives. Amen.